Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Simon Anthony and Torty Talks. Douglas Adams wrote the following. I'm just reading it. All the others are on my podcast online in various places. If you do a search on the progenitor of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, one of the many, you know, used to be Alta Vista, now it could be Google or maybe even um, Chat GPT. Anyway, please enjoy. This is the umpteenth performance of A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. In fact, we've been on Earth, blown it up, uh, been to Milliways, seen the entire universe explode. Well, actually, we missed that. Um, and now we're uh, going to visit the ruler of the universe. Chapter 25. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has this to say about the planet of Golga Frinsham. It is a planet with an ancient and mysterious history, rich in legend, red and occasionally green with the blood of those who sought in times gone by to conquer her. A land of parched and barren landscapes, of sweet and sultry air, heady with the scent of the perfumed springs that trickle over its hot and dusty rocks, and nourish the dark and musty lichens beneath. A land of fevered brows and intoxicated imaginings, particularly amongst those who taste the lichens. A land also of cool and shaded thoughts amongst those who have learnt to forswear the lichens and find a tree to sit beneath. A land also of steel and blood and heroism. A land of the body and of the spirit. This was its history. And in all this ancient and mysterious history, the most mysterious figures of all were, without doubt, those of the great circling poets of Arium. These circling poets used to live in remote mountain passes, where they would lie in wait for small bands of unwary travellers, circle round them and throw rocks at them. And when the travellers cried out, saying, why didn't they go away and get on with writing some poems instead of pestering people with all this rock-throwing business, they would suddenly stop and then break into one of the 794 great song cycles of Vasilian. These songs were all of extraordinary beauty and even more extraordinary length, and all fell into exactly the same pattern. The first part of each song would tell how there once went forth from the city of Vesilion a party of five sage princes with four horses. The princes, who were of course brave, noble and wise, travelled widely in the distant lands, fought giant ogres, pursue exotic philosophies, take tea with weird gods and rescue beautiful monsters from ravening princesses, before finally announcing that they have achieved enlightenment and that their wanderings are therefore accomplished. The second and much longer part of each song would tell of all their bickerings about which one of them is going to have to walk back. All this lay in the planet's remote past. It was, however, a descendant of one of these eccentric poets who invented the spurious tales of impending doom, which enabled the people of Golga Frinchum to rid themselves of an entire useless third of their population. The other two-thirds stayed firmly at home and lived full, rich and happy lives. 
until they were all suddenly wiped out by a virulent disease contracted from a dirty telephone. Chapter 26 That night, the ship crash-landed onto an utterly insignificant little green-blue planet which circled a small unregarded sun in the uncharted backwaters of the unfashionable end of the western spiral arm of the galaxy. In the hours preceding the crash, Ford Prefect had fought furiously but in vain to unlock the controls of the ship from their preordained flight path. It had quickly become apparent to him that the ship had been programmed to convey its payload safely, yet uncomfortably, to its new home, but to cripple itself beyond repair in the process. Its screaming, blazing descent through the atmosphere had stripped away most of its superstructure and outer shielding, and its final inglorious belly flop into the murky swamp had left its crew only a few hours of darkness, during which to revive and offload its deep-frozen and unwanted cargo before the ship began to settle, almost at once slowly upending its giant bulk into the stagnant slime. Once or twice during the night, it was starkly silhouetted against the sky as burning meteors, the detritus of its descent, flashed across the sky. In the grey pre-dawn light, it let out an obscene roaring gurgle and sank forever into the stinking depths. When the sun came up that morning, it shed its thin, watery light over a vast area heaving with wailing hairdressers, public relations executives, opinion pollsters and the rest, all clawing their way desperately to dry land. A less strong-minded sun would probably have gone straight back down again, but it continued to climb its way through the sky, and after a while the influence of its warming rays began to have some restoring effect on the feebly struggling figures. Countless numbers had, unsurprisingly, been lost to the swamp in the night, and millions more had been sucked down with the ship but those that survived still numbered hundreds of thousands, and as the day wore on, they clawed out over the surrounding countryside, each looking for a few square feet of solid ground on which to collapse and recover from their nightmare ordeal. Two figures moved further afield. From a nearby hillside, Ford Prefect and Arthur Dent watched the horror of which they could not feel apart. Filthy, dirty, tricked a poor, muttered Arthur. Ford scraped a stick along the ground and shrugged. An imaginative solution to a problem, I'd have thought, he said. Why can't people just learn to live together in peace and harmony, said Arthur. Ford gave a loud, very hollow laugh. Forty-two, he said, with a malicious grin. No, he doesn't work. Never mind. Arthur looked at him as if he'd gone mad, seeing nothing to indicate the contrary, realised that it would be perfectly reasonable to assume that this had in fact happened. What do you think will happen to them all? he said after a while. In an infinite universe, anything can happen, said Ford. Even survival. Strange but true. A curious look came into his eyes as they passed over the landscape and then settled again on the scene of misery below them. I think they'll manage for a while, he said. Arthur looked up sharply. Why do you say that, he said. Ford shrugged. Just a hunch, he said, and refused to be drawn to any further questions. Look, he said suddenly. 
After following his pointing figure down amongst the sprawling masses, a figure was moving, or perhaps lurching would be more of an accurate description. He appeared to be carrying something on his shoulder. As he lurched from prostrate form to prostrate form, he seemed to wave whatever the something was at them in a drunken fashion. After a while, he gave up the struggle and collapsed in a heap. Arthur had no idea what this was meant to mean to him. Movie camera, said Ford, recording the historic moment. Well, I don't know about you, said Ford again after a moment, but I'm off. He sat for a while in silence. After a while, this seemed to require comment. Um, when you say you're off, what do you mean exactly, said Arthur. Good question, said Ford. I'm, I'm getting total silence. Looking over his shoulder, Arthur saw that he was twiddling with knobs on a small box. Ford had already introduced this box, a sub-ether sensomatic, but Arthur had merely nodded absently and not pursued the matter. In his mind, the universe still divided into two parts, the Earth and everything else. The Earth, having been demolished to make way for a new hyperspace bypass, meant that this view of things was a little lopsided, but Arthur tended to cling to that lopsidedness as being his last remaining contact with his home. Sub-ether sensomatics belonged firmly in the everything else category. Not a sausage, said Ford, shaking the thing. Sausage, thought Arthur to himself, as he gazed listlessly at the primitive world about him. What I wouldn't give for a good earth sausage. Would you believe, said Ford in exasperation, that there are no transmissions of any kind within light years this benighted tip? Are you listening to me? What? said Arthur. We're in trouble, said Ford. Oh, said Arthur. This sounded like month-old news to him. Until we pick up anything on this machine, said Ford, our chances of getting off this planet are zero. It may be some freak standing wave effect in the planet's magnetic field, in which case we just travel round and round till we find a clear reception area. Coming? He picked up his gear and strode off. Arthur looked down the hill. The man with the movie camera had struggled back up to his feet, just in time to film one of his colleagues collapsing. Arthur picked a blade of grass and strode off after Ford. Chapter 27 I trust you had a pleasant meal, said Zani Whoop to Zaphod and Trillian as they materialised on the bridge of the starship Heart of Gold and lay panting on the floor. Zaphod opened some eyes and glowered at him. You, he spat. He staggered to his feet and stomped off to find a chair to slump into. He found one and slumped into it. I've programmed the computer with the improbability coordinates pertinent to our journey, said Zaniwoop. We will arrive there very shortly. M meanwhile, why don't you relax and prepare yourself for the meeting? Zaphod said nothing. He got up again and marched over to a small cabinet from which he pulled a bottle of old jank spirit. He took a long pull at it. And when this is all over, said Zaphod savagely, it's done, all right? I'm free to go to do what the hell I like and lie on beaches and stuff. Depends on what transpires from the meeting, said Zaniwoop. Safehold, who is this man? said Trillian shakily, wobbling to her feet. What's he doing here? Why is he on our ship? He's a very stupid man, said Zaphod, who wants to meet the man who rules the universe. Ah, 
Sir Trillian, taking the bottle from Zaphod and helping herself. A social climber. Chapter 28. The major problem, one of the major problems, uh, for there are several, one of the many major problems with governing people is that of whom you get to do it, or rather of who manages to get people to let them get to do it. To summarise, it's a well-known fact that those people who most want to rule people are, ipso facto, those least suited to do it. Uh, to summarise the summary, anyone who is capable of getting themselves made president should on no account be allowed to do the job. To summarise the summary of the summary, people are a problem. And so this is the situation we find. A succession of galactic presidents who so much enjoy the fun and palaver of being in power that they very rarely notice that they're not. And somewhere in the shadows behind them, who can possibly rule if no one who wants to do it can be allowed to? On a small, obscure world, somewhere in the middle of nowhere in particular, nowhere that is that could ever be found, since it is protected by a vast field of improbability to which only six men in this galaxy have a key, it was raining. It was bucketing down. It had been for hours. It beat the top of the sea into a mist. It pounded the trees. It churned and slopped a stretch of scrubby lands near the sea into a mud bath. The rain pelted and danced on the corrugated iron roof of the small shack that stood in the middle of this patch of scrubby land. It obliterated the small rough pathway that led from the shack down to the seashore and smashed apart the neat piles of interesting shells which had been placed there. The noise of the rain on the roof of the shack was deafening within, but went largely unnoticed by its occupant, whose attention was otherwise engaged. He was a tall, shambling man with rough, straw-coloured hair that was damp from the leaking roof. His clothes were shabby, his back was hunched. His eyes, though open, seemed closed. In this shack was an old, beaten-up armchair, an old, scratched table, an old mattress, some cushions and a stove that was small, but warm. There was also an old and slightly weather-beaten cat, and this was currently the focus of the man's attention. He bent his shambling form over it. Pussy, 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 he said. Coochie, 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 coo. Pussy want his fish. Nice piece of fish. Pussy want it. The cat seemed undecided on the matter. It pawed rather condescendingly at the piece of fish the man was holding out, and then got distracted by a piece of dust on the floor. Pussy not eat his fish. Pussy get thin and waste away, I think, said the man. Doubt crept into his voice. I imagine this is what will happen, he said. But how can I tell? He proffered the fish again. Pussy think, he said. Eat fish or not eat fish. I think it is better if I don't get involved. He sighed. I think fish is nice, but then I think that rain is wet, so who am I to judge? He left the fish on the floor for the cat and retired to his seat. Ah, I seem to see you eating it, he said at last, as the cat exhausted the entertainment possibilities of the speck of dust and pounced on the fish. I like it when I see you eat the fish, said the man, because in my mind you will waste away if you don't.
He picked up from the table a piece of paper and a stub of a pencil. He held one in one hand and the other in the other, and experimented with the different ways of bringing them together. He tried holding the pencil under the paper, then over the paper, then next to the paper. He tried wrapping the paper around the pencil. He tried rubbing the stubby end of the pencil against the paper, and then he tried rubbing the sharp end of the pencil against the paper. It made a mark, and he was delighted with the discovery, as he was every day. He picked up another piece of paper from the table. This had a crossword on it. He studied it briefly and filled in a couple of clues before losing interest. He tried sitting on one of his hands and was intrigued by the feel of the bones of his hip. Fish come from far away, he said, or so I am told, or so I imagine I am told. When the men come, or when in my mind the men come in their six black ships, do they come in your mind too? What do you see, pussy? He looked at the cat, which was more concerned with getting the fish down as rapidly as possible than it was with these speculations. And when I hear their questions, do you hear their questions? What do their voices mean to you? Perhaps you just think they're singing songs to you. He reflected on this and saw the flaw in the supposition. Perhaps they are singing songs to you, he said, and I just think they're asking me questions. He paused again. Sometimes he would pause for days just to see what it was like. Do you think they came today? He said. I do. There's mud on the floor, cigarettes and whiskey on the table, fish on a plate for you, and a memory of them in my mind. Hardly conclusive evidence, I know, but then all evidence is circumstantial. And look what else they've left me. He reached over to the table and pulled some things off it. Crosswords, dictionaries, and a calculator. He played with the calculator for an hour, whilst the cat went to sleep and the rain outside continued to pour. Eventually, he put the calculator aside. I think I must be right in thinking they ask me questions, he said. To come all that way and leave all these things for the privilege of singing songs to you would be very strange behaviour. Or, or so it seems to me. Who can tell? Who can tell? From the table he picked up a cigarette and lit it with a spill from the stove. He inhaled deeply and sat back. I think I saw another ship in the sky today, he said at last. A big white one. I'd never seen a big white one. Just the six black ones. And the six green ones. And the others who say they've come from so far away. Never a big white one. Perhaps six small black ones can look like one big white one at certain times. Perhaps I would like a glass of whiskey. Yes, that seems more likely. He stood up and found a glass that was lying on the floor by the mattress. He poured in a measure of whiskey from his whiskey bottle. He sat down again. Perhaps some other people are coming to see me, he said. A hundred yards away, pelted by the torrential rain, lay the heart of gold. Its hatchway opened and three figures emerged, huddling into themselves to keep the rain off their faces. In there, shouted Trillian above the noise of the rain, Yes, said Zani Whoop. That shack? Yes. Weird, said Zaphod. But it's in the middle of nowhere, said Trillian. We must have come to the wrong place. You can't rule the universe from a shack. 
They hurried through the pouring rain and arrived wet through at the door. They knocked. They shivered. The door opened. Hello, said the man. Ha, oh, excuse me, said Zaniwoop. I have reason to believe. Do you rule the universe, said Zaphod. The man smiled at him. I try not to, he said. Are you wet? Zaphod looked at him in astonishment. Wet, he cried. Doesn't it look as if we're wet? That's how it looks to me, said the man. But how you feel about it might be an altogether different matter. If you feel warmth makes you dry, you'd better come in. They went in. They looked around the tiny shack. Zani whooped with slight distaste, trilling with interest, Zaphod with delight. Hey, ah, 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 what's your, said Zaphod, what's your name? The man looked at them doubtfully. I don't know. Why do you think I should have one? It seems very odd to give a bundle of vague sensory perceptions a name. He invited Trillian to sit in the chair. He sat on the edge of the chair. Zani Whoop leaned stiffly against the table, and Zaphod lay on the mattress. Wowee, said Zaphod. The seat of power, he tickled the cat. Listen, said Zani Whoop. I must ask you some questions. All right, said the man kindly. You can sing to my cat if you like. Would you like that? asked Zaphod. You better ask him, said the man. Does he talk? said Zaphod. I have no memory of him talking, said the man, but I am very unreliable. Zani Whoop pulled some notes out of a pocket. Now, he said, you do rule the universe, do you? How can I tell? said the man. Zani Whoop ticked off a note on his paper. How long have you been doing this? Ah, said the man, this is a question about the past, isn't it? Zani Whoop looked at him in puzzlement. This wasn't exactly what he'd been expecting. Yes, he said. How can I tell, said the man, that the past isn't a fiction designed to account for the discrepancy between my immediate physical sensations and my state of mind? Zani Whoop stared at him. The steam began to rise from his sodden clothes. So, you answer all questions like this, he said. The man answered quickly. I say what it occurs to me to say when I think I hear people say things. More I cannot say. Zaphod laughed happily. Oh, drink to that, he said, and pulled out the bottle of jank spirit. He leapt up and handed the bottle to the ruler of the universe, who took it with pleasure. Good on you, great ruler, he said. Tell it like it is. No, listen to me, said Zani Woo. People come to you, do they? In ships? I think so, said the man. He handed the bottle to Trillian. And they ask you, said Zani Whoop, to take decisions for them? About people's lives? About worlds? About economies? About wars? About everything going on out there in the universe? Out where? said the man. Out there, said Zani Whoop, pointing at the door. How can you tell there's anything out there? said the man politely. The door's closed. The rain continued to pound the roof. Inside the shack it was warm. But you know there's a whole universe out there, cried Zani Whoop. You can't dodge your responsibilities to saying they don't exist. The ruler of the universe thought for a long while, while Zani Whoop quivered with anger. You're very sure of your facts, he said at last. I couldn't trust the thinking of a man who takes the universe, if there is one, for granted. Zani Whoop still quivered, but was silent.
I only decide about my universe, continued the man quietly. My universe is my eyes and my ears. Anything else is hearsay. But don't you believe in anything? The man shrugged and picked up his cat. I don't understand what you mean, he said. You don't understand that what you decide in this shack of yours affects the lives and fates of millions of people? This is all monstrously wrong. I don't know. I've never met all these people you speak of, and neither, I suspect, have you. They only exist in words we hear. It is folly to say you know what's happening to other people. Only they know if they exist. They have their own universes of their own eyes and ears. Trillian said, I, I think I'm just popping outside for a moment. She left and walked into the rain. Do you believe other people exist? insisted Zani Whoop. I have no opinion. How can I say? I better go and see what's up with Trillian, said Zaphod and slipped out. Outside, he said to her, I think the universe is in pretty good hands, yeah? Very good, said Trillian. They walked off into the rain. Inside, Zani Whoop continued. But don't you understand that people live or die on your word? The ruler of the universe waited for as long as he could. Uh, when he heard the faint sound of the ship's engines starting, he spoke to cover it. It's nothing to do with me, he said. I'm not involved with people. The Lord knows I'm not a cruel man. Aha, barked Zanibu. You said the Lord. You believe in something. My cat, said the man benignly, picking it up and stroking it. I call him the Lord. I'm kind to him. All right, said Zanibu, pressing his point home. How do you know he exists? How do you know he knows you to be kind or enjoys what he thinks of as your kindness? I don't, said the man with a smile. I have no idea. It merely pleases me to behave in a certain way to what appears to be a cat. Do you behave any differently? Please, I think I am tired. Zanywoop heaved a thoroughly dissatisfied sigh and looked about. Where are the other two? he said suddenly. What other two? said the ruler of the universe, settling back into his chair and refilling his whiskey glass. Beeblebrox and the girl, the two who are here. I remember no one. The past is a fiction to account for. Stuff it, snapped Zanywoop and ran out into the rain. There was no ship. The rain continued to churn the mud. There was no sign to show where the ship had been. He hollered into the rain. He turned and ran back into the shack and found it locked. The ruler of the universe dozed lightly in his chair. After a while, he played with the pencil and the paper again and was delighted when he discovered how to make a mark with the one on the other. Various noises continued outside, but he didn't know whether they were real or not. Uh, he then uh, talked to his table for a week to see how it would react. Chapter 30 The stars came out that night, dazzling in their brilliance and clarity. Ford and Arthur had walked more miles than they had any means of judging, and finally stopped to rest. The night was cool and balmy, the air pure, the sub-ether sensomatic, totally silent. A wonderful stillness hung over the world, a magical car which, combined with the soft fragrances of the wood, the quiet chatter of insects, and the brilliant light of the stars to soothe their jangled spirits.
Even Ford Prefect, who had seen more worlds than he could count on a long afternoon, was moved to wonder if this was the most beautiful he had ever seen. All that day they had passed through rolling green hills and valleys, richly covered with grasses, wild-scented flowers and tall, thickly-leaved trees. The sun had warmed them, light breezes had kept them cool, and Ford Prefect had checked his sub-ether sensomatic at less and less frequent intervals, and had exhibited less and less annoyance at its continued silence. He was beginning to think he liked it here. Cool though the night air was, they slept soundly and comfortably in the open, and awoke a few hours later with a light dewfall, feeling refreshed but hungry. Ford had stuffed some small rolls into his satchel at many ways, and they breakfasted off those before moving on. So far they had wandered purely at random, but now they struck out firmly eastwards, feeling that if they were going to explore this world, they should have some clear idea of where they had come from and where they were going. Shortly before noon they had their first indication that the world they had landed on was not an uninhabited one. A half-glimpsed face among the trees, watching them. It vanished at the moment they both saw it, but the image they were both left with was of a humanoid creature, curious to see them, but not alarmed. Half an hour later they glimpsed another such face, and ten minutes later, another. A minute later they stumbled into the wide clearing and stopped short. Before them in the middle of the clearing stood a group of about two dozen men and women. Who knows what will happen next? That was one in a series of Torty Talks by Simon Anthony, acting at torty.org.uk.